0: Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Friday, February the 16th, 2024. All material heard on iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Jim Hoffman and myself, Scott Splaybuck. Now here's Jim with our first story. Thanks, Scott.
1: And uh, we start off with this uh, on the front page of the Quad City Times. Uh, West Liberty Foods announces layoffs. West Liberty Foods has announced plans to phase out a portion of its operations during the coming year, which will result in the laying off of about a quarter of the workforce at the West Liberty facility. According to a statement from Dan Waters, chief legal officer and media contact for West Liberty Foods, the facility will wind down its ready to eat slicing operation and its second shift Uh, log fabrication operations in West Liberty during the remainder of the calendar year. On Tuesday, February 13th, team members were notified that about 260 production jobs will be eliminated during the coming year. Currently, the plant employs about 865 team members. As a resident of this community, the decision to reduce production capacity in West Liberty was difficult and painful. Brandon Aachen, President and CEO of West Liberty Foods, said following the statement regarding the layoffs, We value the contributions of all team members and deeply regret the need for layoffs. We are committed to connecting each affected person with new employment opportunities and support. Waters said the facility is working with impacted team members to identify reassignment opportunities within the company and would provide on site reemployment and support services. West Liberty Foods did not respond to questions emailed to the Muscatine Journal. No workers were laid off at the time of the announcement. The layoffs will occur in stages in April, May, June, and November. The layoffs will mainly impact the West Liberty plant. Waters also reported that turkey harvesting and first-shift log fabrication operations in West Liberty would not be impacted. He also said that West Liberty Foods would continue to be headquartered in West Liberty. In November 2023, West Liberty Foods announced that it had laid off 25 team members in the West Liberty facility. 17 people in the Bowling Brook, Illinois plant, and 12 in the Tremonton, Utah plant due to scaled back production. In October, 2022, the company announced the closure of its Mount Pleasant facility. At the time, Waters said that during the COVID-19 pandemic and the labor shortage that followed, West Liberty Foods had to scale back production allocate available products among existing customers, and turn away new business. This left the business with more supervisory, clerical, and sales positions than were needed to support the reduced production. Farmer-owned West Liberty Foods raises about five million turkeys annually. Iowa ranks seventh in turkey production, and West Liberty Foods provides 40% of the turkeys produced. The West Liberty plant makes about $659 million annually and has about a $55 million payroll, according to previous reports.
0: Davenport seeks ruling. City asks court to rule whether it has to release demand letter. This is written by Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. The City of Davenport is asking a judge to rule on whether the city must release a demand letter from its former administrator under state public records laws. Then-City Administrator Corey Spiegel delivered a letter September 15, 2023, to former City Attorney Tom Warner addressed to the Mayor, members of the City Council, and the City, according to a petition filed Wednesday by the City in Scott County Court. In the court filing, the city says the letter detailed a series of circumstances that Spiegel contends constitutes discrimination, harassment, bias, intimidation, and retaliation and makes a monetary demand. Spiegel signed a separation agreement that includes a $1.6 million payment for emotional damages and lost wages in early October, which wasn't announced to the public until just before Thanksgiving and wasn't voted on in public by the city council until December. The city has named David Ezra Sidron a frequent records requester and retired University of Iowa computer science professor as the defendant, though the city is not seeking any judgment against Sidron nor any damages. In November and again in January, Sidron sent open records requests to the city of Davenport requesting documents that the city wrote could be interpreted to include Spiegel's letter. Others have made similar requests, including the Quad City Times. Initially believing the letter to be a confidential personnel record, the city has not released it in response to any open records requests, the city wrote in its filing. The city wrote that it received threats of lawsuits after it released other allegedly confidential records. In a records request, Filed in late November, the city released demand letters from two other employees that detailed allegations of harassment by elected officials and included health care sought in response. City legal staff said at the time that the documents were mistakenly released unredacted. The city also faces a separate lawsuit from a Scott County resident, Alan Dierks, That alleges the city failed to follow open meetings laws in the handling of separation from and agreeing on payments to three city employees the city has now been placed in an impossible position if it does not release the letter as a confidential record it risks being sued under chapter 22 for an open records violation or if it releases the letter It risks being sued for releasing a confidential record, the city wrote in its filing. The city asked the court to determine whether Spiegel's letter is a confidential record under Iowa Code Chapter 22, and if it is a confidential record, whether the city, as custodian of the record, has the right to release it. The city is unable to determine if the letter must be released, meaning it's not a confidential record, or is a confidential record that may be released. The city requests that the court construe chapter 22 and the letter and determine whether the city must release the letter, the city wrote. The city added that it is it expresses no opinion on the outcome of this case and will comply with the court's determination. Randy Evans, the Iowa Freedom of Information Council Executive Director, said he's seen similar lawsuits very rarely. As to the letter the city administrator gave to the city attorney that led to the settlement with her, I do indeed believe that weighing the public interest in her letter versus her privacy interests, the letter should be made public, Evans wrote in an email. Sidron, in an email to the Quad City Times, wrote, The city of Davenport had no qualms about twice providing me with Tiffany Thorndykes and Samantha uh, Torres's demand letters in response to my FOIA requests, but has repeatedly refused giving me Spiegel's demand letter, which was requested in the same FOIA. Since I have not seen it, I can only assume that the contents of Spiegel's demand letter must be explosive. Why else would they pay her $1.6 million to keep silent? All right. Thanks, Scott.
1: And uh, go to an article written by uh, Gannon Hannavold, a writer for the Quad City Times, Local Starstruck by Armstrong in 1964. Um, And this is part of the Timeless Tickets uh, series of uh, articles that the Quad City Times is um, engaged in. J. Douglas Miller has helped out on many films shot in the Quad Cities over the years, but it all dates back to a single concert in 1964. He got his start working at the RKO Orpheum Theater as a head usher for much of his young adulthood. He later became a production executive with Motion Pictures Midwest. But he says his career in showbiz would have never happened if it weren't for a day backstage at the Orpheum when he was 15. On September 29, 1964, Louis Armstrong was in the Quad Cities to perform. Miller was a fan of the jazz great, mostly due to his connection to local icon Bix Spiderbeck. Biterbeck's brother was a family friend and Miller remembers hearing his father tell stories about Bix on their front porch. When he learned that Armstrong was a friend and mentor of Beiderbeck, their relationship dated back to the riverboat days. Miller asked his dad if he could go to Armstrong's show. My dad was a close friend of the stage manager at the RKO, Charlie Mooney, Uh, He said, seats were center aisle, row three, right in front of the stage. Armstrong was quite the star at the time, writing the success of his signature 1964 single, Hello Dolly. He had toured the, the world multiple times and was writing something of a comeback that year. Hello Dolly was his first single in two years, and it ended up winning the Grammy Award for Song of the Year in 1965. Miller said the show was fantastic, but what was even better was what came after. Mooney offered Miller and a friend a chance to go backstage. Sure enough, he met the 63-year-old Armstrong. I was so starstruck I didn't know what to say, Miller said. Think of any picture you've ever seen of Armstrong with those big eyes of his and his mouth full of white, pearly teeth. Miller said he knew in that moment that he wanted to work in the theater business. A year later, when he turned 16, he applied for a job, making 50 cents an hour at the RKO Orpheum Theater. He went on to work at shows featuring Sonny and Cher, The Beach Boys, The Yardbirds, and many other major touring acts. While Miller scored his seats with a stroke of luck, Armstrong's show at the Orpheum in 1964 would have cost others in the crowd between two and four dollars to get in. The show started at 8.30 p.m. and featured Armstrong's All-Star Band, comprised of Billy Kyle, Danny Barcelona, Trummy Young, Jewel Brown, Arville Shaw, and Joe Derensboe. At the time, the number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 was Oh, Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison and the Candy Man. The Beatles clocked in at number 19 with A Hard Day's Night, and further down the road, you could see the Rolling Stones and the Kinks. The British rock invasion was upon us. The top movie at the box office that weekend was A Shot in the Dark the newest addition to the Pink Panther franchise. It starred Peter Sellers, Elkie Summer, and Herbert Lom. The top stories in the Times Democrat that day concerned a family murder in Detroit, increasing pressure on the war in Vietnam, and a woman in New York who had quadruplets after trying an experimental fertility drug locally the uh, quad cities prepared for motorcades due to visits that week from 1964 vice presidential candidate hubert humphrey and former u s president and future president richard nixon armstrong's show in davenport came at the tail end of a summer dominated by headlines in the fight for civil rights dubbed the freedom summer the previous months included landmark protests in the fight to end legalized discrimination against African Americans. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, which effectively outlawed legal segregation, was signed in July. It was significant, then, that some of the Quad City's biggest concerts that year featured black performers. Beyond Armstrong's show in Davenport, Ike and Tina Turner, appeared at the United Auto Workers Hall in East Moline just a week earlier on September 20th. Also earlier that month, Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars played at the RKO Orpheum Theater on September 1 with a lineup headlined by Diana Ross and the Supremes. Other significant events that took place in 1964 include Lyndon B. Johnson's election as president, Cassius Clay's name changed to Muhammad Ali after his defeat of Sonny Liston, and the opening of the John Deere World Headquarters in Moline. Just a day after Armstrong's Davenport show, musical engineer Robert Moog demonstrated a new instrument in Toronto, the synthesizer. We'll be hearing more of that sound down the line. As for Armstrong, Miller said he believes that show in 1964 was the jazz great's last time playing in the Quad Cities. Armstrong died in 1971, but with his impact on Bick Spiderbeck and one 15-year-old fan, echoes of Satchmo can still be heard near the river.
0: Thanks, Jim. Clinton man facing firearm charge. This is written by Thomas Geyer of the Quad City Times. A Clinton man awaiting trial on drug and gun charges was arrested Monday for allegedly shooting his girlfriend in the neck. Keegan James Hayes, age 21, is charged in Clinton County District Court with one count of reckless use of a firearm causing serious injury. The charge is a class C felony under Iowa law that carries a prison sentence of 10 years. According to the arrest affidavit filed by Clinton Police Officer Alice Kane, at 5.03 p.m. on Monday, Clinton police and firefighters were sent to 727 12th Avenue South to investigate a report of a woman with a gunshot wound. Upon arrival, officers found Hayes holding a cloth on a woman's neck. Hayes told officers he accidentally shot his girlfriend while trying to show her his new firearm. During a post-Miranda interview, Hayes admitted to pointing the gun in the woman's direction and pulling the trigger. The woman sustained a serious injury and was airlifted to University of Iowa hospitals and clinics in Iowa City. Hayes also admitted to using Xanax and marijuana. Under Iowa law, as a person uh, who uses illegal substances, he is prohibited from possessing a firearm in Iowa. He was charged with being a person ineligible to carry dangerous weapons, a serious misdemeanor that carries jail sentence of up to one year. During his first appearance on the charges Tuesday in Clinton County District Court, District Associate Judge Kimberly Shepard scheduled a preliminary hearing in the case for February 23rd. Hayes was being held Thursday morning in the Clinton County Jail on a cash-only bond of $15,000. Hayes is awaiting trial on charges of driving while barred, possession of a controlled substance, marijuana, third offense, and person ineligible to carry dangerous weapons that stemmed from a traffic stop on January the 8th. According to the arrest affidavits filed in that case by Clinton County Sheriff's Deputy Bradley Drews, Hayes was driving a 1998 Chevrolet Silverado K-1500, when he was pulled over for a non-working brake light and a broken windshield. There was an odor of marijuana coming from the vehicle. Hayes told Drews that there might be marijuana in the vehicle and admitted that he might be barred from driving and that he had a firearm in the vehicle. Hayes was placed under arrest and Drews secured the firearm, a Taurus 9mm handgun. During a search of the vehicle, Drews seized six grams of marijuana that was in a plastic bag, three THC vape pens, and two additional magazines for a gun that were each loaded with ammunition. A pretrial conference in that case is scheduled for February the 21st in Clinton County District Court.
1: And turning to some local news, here's an article written by Olivia Allen uh, of the Quad City Times engaging families hayes elementary marks valentine's day on wednesday hayes elementary school in davenport celebrated valentine's day before school along with parents guardians and community members the event the event aimed to promote family engagement and school attendance principal james goddard said i knew we'd have good turnout but i didn't quite expect this he said as nearly 60 families had attended by 7.10 a.m. It's exciting to get families re-engaged with the school and build that sense of community. Students, families, and staff gathered in Hayes Cafeteria for Valentine's Day-themed donuts, funded by Jeff's Car Corner, uh, and uh, attendees were also given an informational flyer about the importance of school attendance. One of the things we wanted to do was make sure we had something to give parents about attendance, Goddard said, highlighting the importance of their child being in school and what it means for their education. The Davenport Elks Lodge also provided families with magnets to take home with the following questions to ask students. What did you learn today? Who did you treat with kindness today? What is something you did today to make you proud? What is your goal for tomorrow? The magnet also includes the following message. Uh, Be kind, be safe, be respectful, and be responsible. The magnets are just to help facilitate Those conversations between parents and kids, Goddard said, so that students don't separate school from home, but that it becomes part of what they talk about, their experience at school, because it's so crucial and important to a child's success. He credits the attendance team at Hayes in formulating the event, also thanking the Elks and Jeffs car corner for their support. We want to build that relationship so that we are partners with parents, Goddard said, rather than just having parents that are consuming the service of the school. That partnership is just super important. It's really powerful to see the willingness of staff and parents to engage with one another. Anna Lee Torres, a fifth grader at Hayes, said Wednesday's event got her ready to have fun at school. I sometimes talk about school at home, like about grades and stuff, she said. I like seeing all my friends at school, and I really like math. Math is kindergartner uh, Kennelly Rice's favorite subject, too. Her stepfather, Robert Calvin, took time off work to attend the breakfast with Kennelly. She's been saying that she's taking me on a date, Calvin said with a smile. It's really nice to be able to spend time with her like this, especially here at the school, so I can see what they're doing here. Kenley said it feels cool to have breakfast at Hayes with her stepdad. I like how everybody is nice to people and having good friends, she said, when asked about her favorite thing uh, at school. At home, Calvin said his wife is good about encouraging conversations about school. She's a little smart one, he said of Kennelly. She started here for pre-K and she couldn't wait for kindergarten. One of Kennelly's classmates, Westland Sims, couldn't pick between music, gym, and art for his favorite subjects. I like going to the playground with my friends, he said, and noting he liked learning how to write in class. His mother, Mariah Erdman, said she regularly asked uh, Weslin about school, class and his teachers. I just try to get as much as I can out of him after school each day, she said, also making sure he's being kind to others, as well as others doing that to him. Emma Williams, a uh, paraeducator at Hayes, said she felt the love in building on uh, in the building on Wednesday. It's like our full-blown community showed up today, and it's just amazing to watch and see. Hay- Williams said, the Hayes staff works hard to keep students and families accountable with attendance. We're really striving for 100% attendance, she said. We've been doing more uh, attendance incentives at the school, seeing students coming to school and showing up for themselves and their classmates. And seeing it pay off has really been awesome to watch.
0: Deer reports first quarter net income of one billion seven hundred and fifty one million dollars. This is written by Gretchen Teske of the Quad City Times. Deer and Company reported net income of one point seven five one billion dollars for the first quarter which ended January the twenty eighth or six dollars and twenty three cents per share. This is down from the same period last year where the company reported a net income of $1.959 billion, or $6.55 per share. Worldwide net sales and revenues decreased 4% to $12.185 billion. Net sales were $10.486 billion for the quarter, compared with $11.402 billion in 2023. Deer's first quarter performance underscores the effectiveness of our smart industrial operating model and the dedication of our workforce, enabling improved performance across economic cycles that surpasses historical benchmarks," CEO John C. May said in a press release. Moreover, we remain committed to empowering our customers to improve their productivity and sustainability through ongoing investment in the next generation of solutions, as evidenced by our partnership on satellite communications to expand rural connectivity announced this quarter. Net income attributable to Deer and Company for fiscal 2024 is forecasted to be in range of 7.50 to 7.75 billion dollars. Moving forward, we expect fleet replenishment to moderate as agricultural fundamentals normalized from record levels in 2022 and 2023 may said regardless of where we are in the cycle demand is accelerating for products and solutions that empower our customers to do more with less and we are uniquely positioned to deliver unparalleled value to our customers and another short article here board of supervisors chair runs for re-election This is written by Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Scott County Supervisor Ken Beck plans to run for a third term, he announced Thursday. Voters first elected Beck, a Republican, to the five-member board in 2016, and he narrowly won re-election in 2020. Supervisors selected him to lead the board as chair in 2020 and again in 2023. County office-seekers must file for the June 7th primary between March 4th and March 22nd. The only other current supervisor up for election in 2024 is Rita Rawson, also a Republican. She announced her bid for re-election earlier this month. A third term will allow me to continue working on key initiatives outlined in the county's uh, strategic plan, Beck wrote in a prepared news release. Beck praised recent work by the county to transition Medic EMS into a county department, completion of the Scott County Radio Project, the combined state-county effort to restore Westlake, appropriating the county's allocation of American Rescue Plan Act funds, navigating the pandemic, and implementing children's mental health services. The county has historically been financially responsible and strategic decisions must be made moving forward to maintain our excellent financial condition, Beck wrote in his announcement. I will continue to promote economic growth opportunities through expansion of existing business, retention of quality jobs such as Kraft Foods and attracting new business such as Amazon and Sterilite. Beck also chairs the Eastern Iowa Mental Health and Disability Services Region, a role he's held since 2020, and chairs the Scott Emergency Communications Center, a role he's held during his second term. He's also the Vice Chair of the Waste Commission of Scott County and is a member of the Bettendorf Intergovernmental Committee, Scott County Regional Authority, Rock Island Arsenal Defense Alliance, Greater Davenport Redevelopment Corporation, and the Bi-State Commission. Beck moved to the Quad Cities in 1984 when he worked as a civil geotechnical engineer for Terra, Terracon Consultants Incorporated. He retired from Terracon in 2019 after 34 years. And here's a reminder that you are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. It's time to turn to the obituaries, and here's Jim. Thanks,
1: and uh, here we have the the pending uh, funerals: uh, Jeffrey Allen Fuller, sixty, of Aledo, Illinois; Henry or Helen F. Clark Diederman, ninety-six, of Davenport; Clyde Hardy Senior, eighty-five, of Davenport; Marjorie E. Thies, one hundred, of East Moline. Janet Christensen, 58, of Bettendorf, and Deborah Sue Cole, 68, of Bennett. And we have just the one obituary uh, today. Beverly Alice Welchon was born on March 9, 1941, to John and Hazel Fonger in Moline, Illinois. She married Charles Jennings in 1955 and had four children. Angelica, Arthur, Crystal, and Sandra, then later divorced. She was later married to Robert Welchon in 1970 and later adopted Angel in 1981. She always wanted to do everything she could to help others and decided to become a foster parent. During this time, she fostered three children, Ali Rourke, Brandy Bradbury, and Levi McClure. Beverly later divorced Robert in 1989. Beverly loved spending time with her whole family, including her children, 17 grandchildren, and many great and great-great-grandchildren. She especially loved yellow roses, going to bingo, and going to the casino to play slot machines. She was also addicted to online shopping for her grandkids. She was a very selfless person who enjoyed helping others, and would give the shirt off her back if someone needed it. She will be deeply missed by all of her family and friends, and everyone she considered as her bonus children and bonus grandchildren. She is survived by a younger brother, uh, Lloyd, uh, spouse Dorothy Fonger of East Moline, three of her children, um, and, and her many grandchildren, great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by 10 of her 11 siblings, two of her daughters, uh, and both of her previous husbands. A celebration of life is pending
0: at this time. I'll turn to the opinion page, and our first opinion piece is written by Steve Corbin, who is a professor emeritus of marketing at the University of Northern Iowa. It's entitled, Maintaining a Democracy, Not a Spectator Sport. Martin Niemöller, a German Lutheran pastor, composed a 1946 post-World War II confessional titled, First They Came for the Socialists. The four-line composition explains, in straightforward language, how the Nazis rose to power by methodically silencing German intellectuals and clergy. The best-known version of the prose is housed in the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and it reads, First they came for the Socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Socialist. Then they came for the Trade Unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Trade Unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. Let's be frank. Since the Tea Party's founding in the year 2009, several groups on their own accord and or in conjunction with political parties, biased think tanks, political action committees, and politicians are trying to silence you and me via multiple measures. If Pastor Niemöller's 1946 verse reflected America in 2024, it might read, First, they came for restricting women's reproductive rights and the rights of LGBTQIA transgender youth, people with mental health issues, the physically disabled, and the homeless, and I did not speak out because I decided the issues are too complex to handle. Then they came for banning of books and dissing public education, and I did not speak out because I don't have kids in school. Then they came for denouncing Black Lives Matter and people from other countries while accepting white nationalism and evangelical Christian nationalism, and I did not speak out because I didn't know how to get involved. Then they came to disrespect diversity, equity, inclusion, affirmative action, and sexual harassment claims, and I did not speak out because I'm only one person. Then they came to praising auto- Then they came to praising the autocratic leaders of Russia, China, North Korea, Hungary, and Argentina, and I did not speak out because I didn't know who to express my concerns to. Then they came for isolationism, dismantling America's allies, and throwing global free trade, trans-Pacific partnership, NATO, and United Nations under the bus, and I did not speak out because I'm not in a leadership position. Then they came wanting to reduce funding for supplemental nutrition assistance programs, Medicaid, Social Security, and Medicare, and I did not speak out because I'm too busy working two jobs to make ends meet. Then they came to eliminate eminent domain and void asylum immigration laws, despite 98% of Americans being of immigrant descent. And I did not speak out because my elected representatives are also ignoring the issues. Then they came for ridiculing and trying to defund the Department of Justice, IRS, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Transportation, and Department of Defense. And I did not speak out because that's for politicians and not me to resolve. Then they came for freeing the January 6th Capitol insurrectionists, eradicating votes of fellow citizens, threatening the lives of volunteer election workers, identifying legal judicial actions as as witch hunts, ignoring the Constitution's 14th Amendment, and claiming presidential immunity reigns supreme. And I did not speak out because I decided that's up to the courts to decide. Then they came for ignoring bipartisanship, the $34 trillion national debt, $1.7 trillion federal deficit, aid to Ukraine and climate change, and I did not speak out because I was afraid to take a stance against my political party's wishes. Then they came to impose politically favored gerrymandering, the unification of church and state, hands off with gun ownership and usage restrictions and re-electing politicians who put their party before the people and claim to be your revenge and retribution candidate, and I did not speak out because I'm getting tired of political shenanigans. Then they came to realize the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing, plus knowing maintaining democracy is not a spectator sport, and vowed to vote on November fifth, so America would not revert to, to dictatorial authoritarian control. Because if it not, because if not, then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me.
1: Thanks, Scott. And uh, the other uh, piece on the uh, opinion page here is Black History Month. The basketballist. This written by Gary Franks, who served three terms as U.S. Representative for Connecticut's 5th District. Um, I am a blessed man. I am an American. I am a black American, a descendant of slaves, who has been granted the vast opportunities this country has to offer. Praise God, it did not have to be this way. In 1870, George Washington Pettaway, my great-grandfather and a minister to his fellow slaves, convinced former slave owners to give him a small piece of land on which to build a church and school. It would permit him, along with his wife, Cecilia White Pettaway, to establish the first school for former slaves in their region in North Carolina. Also, it is highly likely that Representative George White, the last black member of Congress in the 19th century, was a distant cousin as he was my great-grandparents' congressman. I did not come from a broken family or a single-parent house. I had two hard-working parents. My father could not read or write, but my mother was a self-proclaimed outstanding student who completed high school. I had two sisters who were grade school teachers while I was at home, so I had homeschooling as well as great public schooling at the same time. How could I not get excellent grades? As the youngest of six, I had role models. My three sisters had either PhDs or JDs and one of my brothers was a colonel in the army while the other was a school teacher and sports coach. With God, arduous work, and a supportive family, all I had to do was believe in myself, treat others like you would want to be treated, never blame others, have faith, and be thankful for my achievements. As I told the Congressional Black Caucus at our first meeting, no one except Representative John Lewis had faced the kind of racism that I had encountered in life. In an ordeal that lasted, For months, the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross in front of our house, made death threats via telephone against our family nightly, shot our dog to death on our lawn, and placed a bleeding dead possum in our mailbox. All this did not stop until the FBI apprehended the Klansmen involved. But my mother convinced me as a child that most people— the vast majority, are not racist. My going to Yale, getting hired by Fortune 500 companies, being elected to Congress in 92% white district, teaching as a college professor, becoming a lobbyist, consultant, and now writer, a nationally syndicated columnist, is all proof of that. I never wanted anything because I was black. I did not want to be denied an opportunity to compete because I was black either. Last year, Yale University established the Gary Frank's Papers and Journals Archive in the Yale Special Collection at the Beinecke Library. I say facetiously, I may have been a basketballist, a made-up word. Whenever I saw a white guy walk on the basketball court, I immediately prejudged that person. First, I did not pick him to be on my team. In fact, none of my friends would want to pick the white guy either. After all, we wanted to win, and we just knew he could not play well enough to help us win. But we would not prohibit him from playing. Then we would be racist. The white guy was the last guy picked, and we did not care how tall he was. No, I did not feel he belonged. I thought that he should have just gone to his own neighborhood to play in a rec league. He would feel more comfortable there. Yet the white guy who had the courage and the ability would not be phased, despite being the last guy picked, or should I say left. He had to handle the pushing and shoving, the fouls that nobody called. After all, it was a pickup game on the playground, which meant no blood, no foul. As fate would have it, the white player got a steal and dribbled the ball down the court for a layup. We all thought that white guys can't jump. And then the unthinkable, the unimaginable happened. The white guy leaped high in the air and did a two-handed slam dunk. Everyone's mouth dropped in amazement. His teammates rushed to him to give him a high five. He could not hide his elation, but quickly realized that he had to remain cool and modest, as other observers did not relish his success. For the white guy, he did not need or want everyone to like him. He just wanted everyone to respect him, allow him to compete, and be fair. Now let us reverse roles and call the game of basketball life for black people in a country dominated by white people. Being a black basketballist in the 1970s was a sign of ignorance. I would soon come to respect white basketball players, not prejudge them. In fact, many white players with proper training and hard work often beat me at my game. In the game of life, I hope that people of all colors can relate to this example and, if need be, change their behavior. In basketball, we have had some great white players, and in life, black people have made major contributions to society. All we want is an opportunity to compete fairly. Believe me, Jerry West, Larry Bird, Pistol Pete Maravich, Luca Denaic, Uh, Dirk Nowitzki, and the joker Nikola Jokic did not need or want any preferred treatment by the referees to be Hall of Fame caliber basketball stars. The NBA has waged, however, an aggressive recruitment effort to find top European white players as they realize the added value they bring to the game. Hmm lesson learned.
0: Thank you, Jim. Let's turn over to the sports page, and here's what's on TV in the sports world today. A lot of college basketball, of course. 2 p.m., Boston College versus Ohio State. Uh, Oh, that's college baseball, excuse me. 2 p.m., Boston College versus Ohio State on the MLB Network. At 7 p.m., it's Kansas State versus California on the MLB Network. College basketball, men's college basketball, 6 p.m., Villanova at Georgetown on CBS Sports Network. Also at 6 p.m., VCU at St. Louis on ESPN2. Manhattan at Iona on ESPNU. Also at 6 p.m., at 8 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Ohio at Toledo. And on FS1 at 9 p.m., it's New Mexico at San Diego State. College women's basketball, 7 p.m. on the Pac-12 network, it's Colorado at Utah. 9 p.m., UCLA at Oregon State on the Pac-12 network. Uh, College softball on ESPNU earlier today at 9 a.m., it was Georgetown versus Oklahoma State. At 11 a.m. on the SEC Network, it's Northwestern versus LSU. At noon, Florida State versus UCLA on ESPNU. 1 p.m., UCF versus North Carolina on the ACC Network. 2 p.m., Tennessee versus Stanford on ESPN2. And 8 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Stanford versus Texas. College Wrestling, 6 p.m., Ohio State at Michigan State on the Big Ten Network. 7.30 p.m., North Carolina at Virginia on the ACC Network. And at 8 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Wisconsin at Minnesota. Today's NBA games at 6 p.m. on ESPN is an all-star celebrity game. And on TNT at 8 p.m., it's the Rising Stars game. And one NHL game today on the NHL Network at 8 p.m. It's Carolina at Arizona. Jim? Thanks, Scott. And uh, <clears throat> last,
1: last night, of course, a big night for Caitlin Clark. Uh, so we have an article here written by Dave Selvik um, <clears throat> Iowa's Clark shatters points record in style. Iowa Star pours in 49 points to blow past Plum. $1,000 seats, more than 100 credentialed media. It wasn't the Super Bowl on Thursday night in Iowa City, but it was close. Carver-Hawkeye Arena was packed with press, and adoring, fans to watch one of the biggest stars in all sports, Caitlin Clark, become the greatest scorer in NCAA Division I women's college basketball history. As she often does, Clark put on a show. The senior from West Des Moines needed eight points to pass WNBA star Kelsey Plum, and she did so in the first quarter, with a three-pointer from the logo, of course. Clark finished with a career-high 49 points plus 13 assists and 5 rebounds as the 4th-ranked Hawkeyes defeated Michigan 106-89. to Clark's 49 points were a Carver-Hawkeye arena record, breaking the 47 of teammate Hannah Stolke on February 8th. It was the 12th time in Clark's career she has scored more than 40. I'm just glad I got to wear Iowa across my chest, Clark said in an on-court interview after the game. It wouldn't be possible without these girls and these coaches right here. Despite Iowa leading by 20 points most of the second half, Clark stayed in until the one hundred forty six mark of the fourth quarter. She got her money's worth, hoisting 31 shots, connecting on 16 of them, including 9 of 18 three-pointers. Another capacity crowd of 14,998, nearly every seat filled more than a half hour before tip-off at 7 p.m., was on hand to witness history. Iowa will finish number 1 in the nation in attendance this season, moving up from the second spot last year. South Carolina topped women's basketball in average attendance in 2022 23, with nearly 13,000 per game. The Hawkeyes will soar past that this season, and based on demand, could have gone much higher Thursday night, especially to see Clarks sh- shatter the record. The Hawkeyes preseason exhibition game against DePaul at Kenny Stadium in October drew more than fifty five thousand fans, a game that did not even count. Thursdays night <clears throat> Thursday night's game did count. After Sunday's road loss to Nebraska, the Hawkeyes, twelve and two in the Big Ten, twenty three and three overall, needed to beat the Wolverines, who are seven seven in the conference, sixteen and ten overall, to keep pace with number two ranked Ohio State. Who are 13 and 1 in the conference, 22 and 3 overall, and 14th rank Indiana, 12 and 2 in the conference, 21 and 3 overall, in the chase for a conference crown. Clark's start was off the charts, even for her. She drove and scored the first two points of the game before back-to-back trademark, deep three-pointers. The record breaker uh, came from the Mediacom logo, more than 30 feet away, which would have made even Steph Curry blush. Clark scored 23 points in the first quarter, making eight of 10 shots, bringing the whipped up home crowd to a fever pitch when she broke the record less than three minutes into the game. Clark flashed her trademark range in the game of her nine three-pointers six were well beyond the standard twenty two feet one and three-quarter inches wasn't it fitting she broke the record with a logo three iowa head coach lisa Bluder said while clark's epic scoring ability has taken the basketball world by storm she has set a new standard in several areas that also may never be matched since arriving from Dowling catholic in the fall of two thousand twenty The six-foot guard has had 10 games of 35 points and 10 assists or more. The other 5,600 Division I college basketball players in the country have combined for zero such games. Maybe the most untouchable Clark stat is this. With at least seven more games to play, and quite possibly several more, she has 3,569 points, one thousand eighteen assists, eight hundred ninety-two rebounds. Before Clark, nobody had come close to three thousand seven fifty-five hundred. Sabrina Ionsku, now a WNBA star for the New York Liberty, went over a thousand assists and a thousand rebounds, but she had uh, more than one thousand fewer points than Clark. UConn WNBA and US Olympic. Team legends, uh, Diana Taurasi, uh, uh, 2,156 points, and Maya Moore, 3,036 true all-time players, were not in Clark's statistical stratosphere either, at least collegially. Like Ana- Ionaskeu, Taurasi, and many of the greats, Clark's numbers have not been hollow in... Um, Clark's career. The Hawkeyes are 98-28, and 28, a winning percent of 77.8. That's why it's always come back to uh, Clark winning. After leading the Hawkeyes to the NCAA title game last season, Iowa's sole mission this season has been to win one more game in March. We got a lot more winning to do, so let's go, Clark said. There are major roadblocks. South Carolina is undefeated. Ohio State, Connecticut, Kansas State, LSU, and a handful of others also will have a say in it. But whose teams don't have what the Hawks have? Number 22. The best player in the country and the greatest scorer of them all.
0: Thanks, Jim. In other Iowa women's basketball news, Iowa selected for preseason event. UConn, Iowa, Louisville, and Tennessee will take part in the inaugural Women's Champions Classic on December the 7th. The doubleheader will be played at Barclays Center and shown in primetime on Fox. The matchups haven't been set yet. The Women's Champions Classic is the next step in Fox Sports' longstanding commitment to elevating women's athletics and we are eager to showcase these student athletes at the highest level in prime time on the fox broadcast network executive vice president of fox sports jordan bazant said alongside our partners at hsne the exceptional participating schools and their conferences we could not be more excited to bring the women's champions classic to college hoops fans around the nation The annual event will feature UConn and include a rotation of other top teams in the country. We're very excited to have the Women's Champions Classic on our schedule for the foreseeable future, UConn coach Gino Arema said. There's never been a higher level of interest in women's basketball. The Champions Classic will give fans exciting marquee matchups early in the season. There's been a men's version of the tournament since 2011 that tips off the season and features Duke, Michigan State, Kentucky, and Kansas while rotating venues every year. It hasn't been decided where the event will take place after this year's inaugural one. Interest in women's sports continues to experience exponential growth and basketball is leading the way with viewership and attendance records continually being set co-CEO of Horizon Sports and Experiences, David Levy, said. This moment feels like the right time to launch the Women's Champions Classic set in the mecca of basketball, and we are proud to have these four storied programs participate in our inaugural event. That brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm your Scott Splevik, and my partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time on iowaradioreading.org. Thanks for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.